This is episode number 51 with global analytics consultant, Scott King. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Hope your week is going great. And today we've got a very interesting guest. Scott King is an analytics consultant, also the founder of Brilliant Data, and also a renowned analytics speaker. Scott comes into organizations to help them with their data capabilities. He helps executives with their strategy, helps them understand what are the best tools for their organization and which is the best way to proceed going forward into the future. And in this podcast, we predominantly talked about Hadoop. So if you've always wanted to find out a bit more about Hadoop or really what's going on at the cutting edge of technology in this space, then this is the podcast for you. In today's episode, you will learn a lot. And I mean a lot. Get your pens and papers out because today you will learn about HDFS, MapReduce, Hive, Hawk, Pig, Kudu, Impala, Spark, Seahorse, and what a data lake is and much, much more. And my favorite part is that Scott has a natural ability to explain these things in a very, very simple manner. So you don't have to be highly technical. You don't have to already have a lot of knowledge about Hadoop to understand all of these things. It'll be very easy for you to get up to speed. So this is your crash course into Hadoop. By the end of uh, this hour, you will know how to operate these terms or at least be up to date with what's going on in this space. In addition, we will also talk about Scott's public speaking and he'll give you some tips and tricks on how to uh, prepare for data science presentations, how to present to different types of audiences and the things that he does that help him out when he's uh, doing public speaking. So all in all, very interesting, exciting podcast. Can't wait for you to check it out. And without further ado, I bring to you Scott King, global analytics consultant and founder of Brilliant Data. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today, we've got Randall Scott King calling in from Atlanta. Randall uh, Scott is a global analytics consultant. How are you going today, Scott? I'm doing very well. How about yourself, Kirill? I'm, I'm well as well. And just, just for the benefit of our listeners, can you explain the whole legacy of names in your family? Because uh, your name is Randall Scott, but uh, everybody calls you Scott. How does that come by? <laughs> I think that's just a thing in my family. We give uh, people first names and then don't use them. Um, yeah. You know, my my father is John Richard. Uh, he went by Richard, I think, probably because his father was also John Richard. John. <laughs> okay, and so John John Richard the Junior, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and and you said you have five children. Are you going to also give them double names as well? <laughs> <laughs> that's ten names you got to think of. Well, yes. As a matter of fact. Um, as a, as a matter of fact, my oldest daughter goes by both of her names. Okay. All right. Gotcha. Um, okay. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. And so for those of you uh, who haven't uh, heard what uh, Randall, oh, sorry, Scott does is 
Uh, Scott is a um, global analytics consultant, and uh, he consults companies like the Fortune 500 companies in analytics, in uh, uh, spaces, things uh, like uh, big data, Hadoop, and uh, Cloudera, and just to name a few. And uh, so this is going to be pretty exciting chat. Um, yeah, so Scott, tell us how you how you got into this whole space of uh, analytics consulting. Uh, you know, it's funny. Um, I started as a user. I was okay. actually the director of business development at an IT reseller. And, um, you know, I was responsible for making sure the company sold $100 million worth of uh, Cisco product. Wow. And I realized one day, I was like, I, I found on the company's interest, um, the internal website, that somebody would publish the the entire dump from the Oracle ERP that had every transaction year to date on it. And I realized pretty quickly, you know, just how powerful that was. You know, I spun up an instance of Pentaho, which is, a, they have an open source version, but it's a, a BI package. And I would go out and get that uh, database dump every day and put it on my laptop. And I'd started looking at the data and, and realized, oh my gosh, you know, I, I can find out everything about the business. I can find out who's selling what, where, to whom. You know, it was really useful in my job as business development to, to know all of that about the business. And um, we were able to post some really strong gains year over year for, you know, the, the three years that I was there by just knowing what was going on. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's powerful. So BI is, is, uh, is great. You know, it tells you what's going on with the company right now and in the past. But it was really when I discovered machine learning. I was like, oh my God, I can predict things now, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And um, and uh, then you slowly transitioned into the space of Hadoop or you do both at, at the moment? So once we started doing that, we started going back further in time, you know, to, we, we had something like eight years worth of data. You know, obviously that outgrew my laptop really quickly. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, um, and just the light bulb went off one day that I was like, you know what, if we're getting this much value out of this kind of stuff, we could be doing this for clients. So yeah, I, I left and, and went out and started Brilliant Data and started doing that sort of thing for clients. Mm. Okay. That's, that's pretty cool. So you have, um, are you consulting on your own or you have a team of uh, people that you work. I've got a small team. Yeah, we're we're a small boutique uh, firm, but we're we're getting to be pretty well known for getting results. Okay. Yeah. No. That's that's great. And um, I'm actually looking at your LinkedIn now, and there's so many people leaving uh, comments about how you presented within companies and uh, on Hadoop and uh, really shaped other companies ways of thinking so ceos directors leaving great comments can you tell us a bit more about that so apart from implementation you're obviously also pushing the envelope in terms of analytics agenda and building these this analytics culture in different organizations how how did you go about doing that well you know i've always done public speaking in in some form or fashion throughout my career i've been you know in it consulting for about 20 years and have always done, you know, either taught classes or gave, you know, sales pitches as a sales as a sales engineer, any number of things that have to do with speaking. And I realized that when I started Brilliant, I was like, you know, 
this is going to be a valuable tool for bringing business in is getting out there and, and speaking and kind of starting the conversations around things. These days, I see it more as, you know, kind of educating people on the state of analytics and the state of big data, because it's it really is changing so quickly all the time. Yeah. So right now, for example, I mean, you know, the, the thing right now is in the past, you really wouldn't want to ever use Hadoop as a data warehouse because there were, you know, some significant limitations there. But there's been some things that have come along just recently that have kind of changed that now. And it's uh, it's at least possible, if not advisable, to do now. And so it, a lot of people don't know that. And so, you know, you kind of get out there and, and let people know. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so so basically two two areas that I want to dig into further is uh, of course your public speaking and, and your experience there and also uh Hadoop and what uh, what you can tell us a bit more about that. So maybe let's start with Hadoop. In in five sentences or less, what is Hadoop for a person listening to this podcast who who hasn't encountered Hadoop before, just heard it as a buzz term? Well, there's really two reasons why you would want to use Hadoop. You've just got more data than a traditional relational database can work with, or you're wanting to work with types of data that a relational database can't work with. Interesting. And uh, uh, how, how much data? How much data are we talking that a relational database can't handle? Like a gigabyte, 10,000 10, gigabytes? Oh uh, no, no, certainly not in gigs. You'd have to get into the upper terabytes, um, you know, or even petabytes before you'd, you'd really max out uh, most of the really good relational databases, like your oracles and and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And uh, is it does it only matter the amount of gigabytes, or also the you know like people probably have heard of the three V's of Hadoop: velocity, variety, and uh, veracity. I think. Um, or variability, maybe four Vs. So it doesn't have to be just the volume of data, or does it can also be just the different types of uh, data that you have in your data set? Well, yeah, it's it's really those two things. You're right; there are the three Vs, but um, the two that I think of when you know talking to clients and figuring out if they actually need Hadoop, because a lot of people think they need Hadoop and they don't. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, told, I told somebody recently they had uh, SAP. You know, they were wanting to, to build dashboards and all that. I'm like, you do realize you can do that with what you have, right? But no, the two things that I think of, you know, when a client says, oh, we need Hadoop. I, okay, well, do you have the volume of data necessary for Hadoop? Well, no. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, do you have a lot of different kinds of data that you want to work with that you would find difficult to put into a database? And they're like, yes. See, we've, we've got these... Um, customer service transcripts that we want to go through and do text analysis on and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, you're not going to do that in a traditional relational database. Yep. Yep. Gotcha. Understood. All right. So Hadoop, if you have a lot of data, uh, if you have lots of different types of data, and then what, once you've implemented or so how, how does this happen? Somebody calls you up and says, we want Hadoop. You ask them the questions and then you say either you need Hadoop or you don't. But if they do need Hadoop, what, what happens from there? Well, it's a matter of determining what they have and what they want to bring into Hadoop and, and what is the ultimate business benefit that they want to achieve. And I think that's really where a lot of Hadoop, you know, there's, there's all kinds of press these days about you know the demise of Hadoop. 
I think it was Mark Twain who wrote to his local newspaper and, you know, they had published an obituary uh, for him. And he said, the news of my death has been greatly exaggerated. (laughs) But I I think the news of Hadoop's death has been greatly exaggerated. I I think that's, you know, goes back to the the Gartner hype cycle. Um, You know, we're in the trough of disillusionment right now. And I'm I'm really looking forward to the, what is it, the plateau of productivity? Something, uh, yeah. So basically you go in and you implement the system how long does it take um what what are what are the what are main cha- the main challenges that you face when you're implementing hadoop at an organization well to actually stand up a hadoop cluster doesn't take very long at all to bring in the client's data and to do the groundwork necessary for that to figure out you know to sit down with them and say okay here's the problem or problems that you're trying to solve, or here's the additional capabilities that you want to develop, um, that takes a while. Bringing the data in takes a while. Even though, you know, people think of Hadoop as, you know, that that whole data lake concept of, oh, just throw it all in the data lake and we'll figure it out later. Well, you can do it that way, sure, (laughs) but I wouldn't advise it. But sitting down with the client and, and figuring out what it is that they're trying to accomplish, figuring out what data they're going to need for that and how to structure that inside either HDFS or uh, Hive or now, you know, if it's a Cloudera install, Kudu, which is a great little tool we can talk about in, uh, in more detail later if you want. But figuring out what exactly it is that they're wanting to accomplish and how to set that up in, in Hadoop is what takes the, the longest time. Usually, once the data is in and it's in the format that you want, doing analysis doesn't really take all that long. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. And there is tools that, uh, like Pivotal, for instance, uh, is is a pretty good tool to to use mm-hmm. on top of uh, on top of Hadoop to make things easy. They have like Pivotal R even um, to allow for that. Okay, so a couple of words you mentioned AGS, hdfs hive kudu could you tell us a bit more let's let's start getting into the technical side of things well sure the the central idea behind hadoop is that it's a distributed system right so you take a a big problem like analyzing terabytes or petabytes of data and you you cut it up into smaller problems and give you know you spread that load out over the individual servers that make up the cluster and then they do their part of it and send it back to you and you get the you reassemble the whole thing on the other side. So, yeah, Hadoop is all about distributed computing. And HDFS, which stands for Hadoop Distributed File System, is, well, I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a distributed file system that spans the whole uh, Hadoop cluster and sits on top of the file system on each node. Okay, so that's basically the the system that connects everything together? Um, that's one way of thinking of it, yeah. I mean, it's it's a file system just like, you know, any other, but it, it spans the whole cluster, and as a result, it can be massive. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and it's uh, one of the main advantages of Hadoop is that it's scalable, right? Yes, yes. You want to make it bigger, you just add machines to the cluster. Okay, and so... How does that compare to using a supercomputer? Why would one use Hadoop over using a supercomputer? Um, Supercomputers tend to be very, very costly, whereas Hadoop uses commodity hardware. I I, I tell people Hadoop is kind of the uh, the exact opposite 
of virtualization. With virtualization, you're taking one big physical server and you're running a bunch of virtual servers on it. Uh, Hadoop does the exact opposite. It takes a bunch of physical servers and makes one big virtual server out of it. Okay, okay, gotcha. And so what happens when one of those individual um, servers or commodity hardwares uh, breaks down? Nothing. Nothing. And that's the beauty of it. So HDFS replicates data a minimum of three times. So you'll there will be three nodes that your data is on. So if one of those nodes takes a dive, you know, let's say the, the power supply sparks and, you know, you have to pull it out and, and replace the power supply or just replace the entire machine. Well, when you put it back in, HDFS will actually rebuild the, the file system that was on it. Okay, so that's pretty cool. So basically, you have three copies of your data on three or on the, on separate nodes, but at the same time, are they all being processed at the same simultaneously, or it's still data is processed on each individual node, but that is just like kept as a backup? Well, what what HDFS does is let's say that you've got a, a terabyte worth of data. It's it's some kind of big table or something. Yeah. Um, what HDFS is going to do is it's going to take that and divide it up into uh, blocks. And those the size of the block is configurable, but I think the default these days is 128 meg. Um, you know, sometimes you might want that to be 64 meg. Sometimes you might want it to be 256. Uh, like I said, it's a, a configurable parameter. But HDFS is going to take that big terabyte file and it's going to chop it up into 128 meg blocks and it's going to replicate each block three times so if you have a 20 node cluster for example you know three blocks that that first block might be on servers one three and five the second block might be on servers 2 15 and 10 etc etc and so the the whole data gets spread out over the cluster and then the name node, which is the part of the cluster that decides where things go and, and decides who does what, it will pick one of the nodes that that first block of data is on and say, okay, your job is to calculate this block of data for this job. Does that gotcha. make sense? Yep, gotcha. And uh, what about MapReduce? Can you tell us a bit more about MapReduce? Well, I kind of just did. Oh, okay, so that is <laughs> so MapReduce. MapReduce yeah, MapReduce is the computation engine, for, okay. uh, or the original computation engine for Hadoop. And uh, MapReduce is, is the, the part that does the actual, you know, calculating anything on the data in Hadoop. Since Hadoop version 2, and with the introduction of something called Yarn, yet another resource negotiator, um, there are additional computation engines like Tez and like Spark that can run on a Hadoop cluster now. You're not just limited to MapReduce. And that's a good thing because MapReduce has some significant limitations. Okay, gotcha. And so, um, all right, and moving on to this whole um, animal kingdom of Hive, Kudu, what else is there, Pig, uh, etc. Oh my gosh, it, it it grows every day, man. <laughs> <laughs> what what can you tell us about that? Like, what first of all, why are the names all animals? That's a really good question. I I'm not sure, but I do know that Hadoop itself, that name came from Doug Cutting's young son at the time, and this was ten years ago. So that kid could probably be an adult by now. Yeah. 
Um, but at the time he had this little toy stuffed elephant, this little yellow stuffed elephant that was named Hadoop. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Doug decided to name the project after that little toy. Mm. Yeah. It's like, it's like kids and, the, uh, what are called, um, uh, inventors or, um, developers of these things and their kids, same thing with, um, Pivotal, right? They have, uh, I think they have a product called Plum or it's the name of the company, Plum. Green, green plum. Green plum. And so mm-hmm. he was like, to his child at the time of creating, he was like, oh, cool. So I've, I've created, I have a cool idea. What are we going to, what should I call it? And the child like picks up an apple from the, you know, basket of food that they have on the table. And the guy's like, well, I can't call it apple. Apple's already taken. So he's like, <laughs> what's the closest thing to a green apple, a green plum? And so that's why they call it green plum. It's just <laughs> funny. Um, Anyway, so Hive, uh, what is Hive? Tell us about that. So once you, let's say that you bring in a a bunch of CSV files into HDFS and and you want to be able to run SQL queries on those, those files. Well, that's what Hive does. It creates tables on top of these files to make them searchable by uh, SQL commands. Okay, okay, gotcha. So it kind of like, makes it uh, makes unstructured data workable through this traditional structured uh, approach. It's actually, it's kind of an interpreter, really. It's an abstraction that sits on top of MapReduce. Yeah. And it translates um, SQL code into MapReduce Java and sends that to MapReduce and says, hey, execute. Yeah, yeah. So if Pivotal have a similar thing to that, right? Uh, like you can do SQL on Hadoop through, uh, I think, uh, through a Pivotal product as well. I just don't remember what it's called. I want to say that's Hawk. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's right. Another yeah. bird. <laughs> Another animal. There we go. <laughs> Another animal. <laughs> Not surprised. All right, cool. That's good. So Hive allows... Uh, so basically even somebody not knowing... Uh, how to work with unstructured data and do Java code and and all those other things, they can still work with Hadoop through things like Hawk or Hive. Yes, and there's actually more abstractions on top of uh, MapReduce. Like PIG, you mentioned earlier, is a scripting language, and it's much easier to learn than Java. But again, basically all it does is it takes that scripting language, turns it into Java, and sends it to MapReduce and says, execute this. Okay, good. Good. That's good. So we've covered HDFS, MapReduce. This is this is value. Uh, Hive, Hawk, Pivotal, R, Pig. Okay, next one on the line, Kudu. You said uh, Cloudera. That's uh, Cloudera's um, creation, right? So tell us a bit more about Kudu. Yeah, so a lot of people have tried to implement... Um, have tried to implement Hadoop in a way that you would normally only want to do with a relational database. I mean, Hadoop and, and had relational databases were never meant to do the same things. But a lot of people have tried to, for example, deploy Hadoop as a data warehouse. This is something that I've advised people against in the past, uh, because the things that you have to do to make that work are just, uh, they're kludgy you know, for lack of a better term. And the problem is that data in HDFS is immutable. You don't change data in HDFS. You either delete it and overwrite it or you append to it. So obviously, you know, that that creates some problems as far as, um, you know, trying to use it as a data warehouse because, you know, you, data warehouses update information all the time. 
So what Kudu really does, and I don't understand why um, Cloudera is not marketing it this way, but they're not. What uh, what Kudu does is it basically eliminates the immutability issue. Um, you know, data in Kudu absolutely is updatable. You can do updates, you can do inserts, you can do deletes, just like you would on a relational database. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, that makes sense. Um, and uh, so it does that. How does how does Kudu do it in terms of? Um, if AGFS restricts the updating of data, how does Kudu go around that? Well, basically, it does it by not using HDFS. So Kudu is is actually a storage engine. It's not, you know, they they're very hesitant to call it a database because it's really it's not. But it is a storage engine that is updatable, whereas HDFS isn't. So you can have HDFS and Kudu running side by side on a Hadoop cluster and, and use them for different things. But, you know, Kudu does not rely on HDFS at all. Okay. The way that Hive does. Okay. Hive relies on HDFS. Kudu just has its own thing for that. Okay, gotcha. And um, all right, so how about next uh, next in our lineup of animals and uh, creatures, uh, Spark <laughs> and Seahorse. What can you say about Spark and Seahorse? Well, going back to what I said earlier about uh, MapReduce, you know, it was the original computation engine, but in uh, in Hadoop version two, they introduced Yarn, and Yarn is—I I like to call Yarn the mom of the cluster. You know, when you were a kid and you wanted something or you wanted to do something, you went to mom, right? Yeah. Because if you went to dad, he was just going to say, "Well, what'd your mother say?" <laughs> totally, yeah. But yeah, I mean. You know, if you and your brother or you and your sister, you know, wanted a cookie and there was only one cookie, mom was going to be the one who decided who got the cookie, right? Yep. And so Yarn does the same thing in a Hadoop cluster. Yarn is is administering the resources of the cluster and deciding, okay, if it's got a, if you've got a bunch of different jobs running on the Hadoop cluster, Yarn is going to say, okay, I'm giving this job this much, um, you know, processing power, etc. And so that used to be in MapReduce. So in version one, MapReduce did all that. But they they took that out of MapReduce and put it into Yarn. And so now MapReduce just does computation. And what that did is it opened up the window to other computation engines and Spark is one of them. So Spark goes instead of MapReduce. Yeah. And, and the great thing about it is because of the way Yarn works, you don't have to choose either or. So, for example, if you've got a job that could really benefit from um, MapReduce's batch-oriented nature, which a lot of ETL processes would qualify, then you can have that job running in MapReduce, while over here you've got a different job running in Spark and taking advantage of Spark's greater speed. Gotcha. So advantage of Spark is speed over MapReduce. Um, the advantage of Spark is is really... Yeah, it's it's orders of magnitude faster than MapReduce. Mm. And the reason for that is MapReduce is very disk oriented and very batch oriented. Yeah. And it's just it's just slow. You know, when MapReduce was invented, they weren't really all that concerned with speed. They were just concerned with being able to do the kinds of things that MapReduce does at all. Yeah. So so whereas MapReduce is batch oriented and disk oriented. I mean, it does everything on disk. Um, Spark will actually load data into memory and 
again, it's just, you know, orders of magnitude faster because of that. Gotcha. All right. And uh, what can you say about Seahorse? You know, Seahorse is this brand new thing that I just stumbled across uh, maybe a month and a half ago. And what Seahorse does is it actually gives you a graphical front end to Spark. So Spark has these great uh, machine learning libraries, ML and MLlib. And Seahorse gives you a graphical interface to using those. It, it really speeds up prototyping for me, I'm noticing. I loaded it on my laptop and you know interface with the the cluster here at the office and and i've noticed that you know rather than hand coding everything in python or java or whatever having that graphical front end enables me to prototype things so much quicker gotcha all right and really they're they're just punching these out like one one and a half months ago that's and you're you're obviously in the center of everything that's going on with hadoop they like how how quickly do they release these things? I mean, you know, you you were saying something about the ecosystem around uh, Hadoop earlier, and how they're all named after different animals and all this. And I was like, yeah, there's a new one every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. You know, again, you know, you could you could spend all kinds of time just keeping up with you know the latest on either Hadoop or big data or machine learning or data science. I mean, there's always something new every week. Mm. And and how do you do it? How do you keep up with everything? Who says I do? <laughs> <laughs> well, you seem to be pretty up to date with everything we've discussed so far. You definitely <laughs> know what's going on. I, I think keeping uh, keeping current on, on anything in, in tech is really a matter of community, right? Um, there's always like, I, I introduced a, a friend of mine who's a, a data scientist at a uh, benefits company. I, I, I sent him an email and said, Hey, have you seen this thing talking about seahorse? Yeah. I said, you know, it's basically a GUI for spark. And he's like, Whoa, I love this. Nice. Nice. And, uh, you know, there's always somebody who's saying, Hey Scott, have you seen this thing over here? And, and you know, sometimes it's, yeah, I have, I, I think it's great. And sometimes it's, Oh my God, no, what is that? <laughs> it's, it's a seahorse <laughs> okay that, that's that's pretty cool and uh like kind of like some sum, summarizing all of these things up together can you um give us a quick description what do people mean when they say data lake obviously these tools somehow all together um assist with or facilitate data lakes or are used in data lakes what do people mean by the term data lake I, you know, I, I think different people mean different things by it. And I think a lot of people use the term and don't even really know what they mean by it. Um, but All right. So uh, let's, let's make it clear for everybody so that when people use it in the future, they know what they're talking about. Yeah. So when you, when you think about a lake, um, a lake is, is different from – so a, a lake has layers, right? You, you've got your sediment and then you've got, you know, kind of the – the murky depths and then you got the top and really what it's all about in, in terms of making that useful for an organization is you've got different kinds of data that you can put in there. And, you know, earlier we said that thing about some people, you know, talk about how Hadoop is where you can just throw things and deal with it later. You, you really can. Uh, you can use Hadoop to archive data and, you know, just get it in there and figure out what to do with it, you know, a couple of years down the road when, you know, there's some use for it. 
or you know you can have it in a hive table or a, or a kudu table for ready access I, I think really the whole data lake concept came about from you know having a place where you could put everything which was kind of the goal of the data warehouse but data warehouses have very strict schema and whatever data you're going to put in there has to conform to that schema with hadoop you don't really have that restriction you can put anything in there and I, I think that's really the whole point of the the data lake concept is yeah there's all kinds of stuff that you can put in there and you can either start using it immediately or figure out what to do with it later all right so but how do i imagine it in terms of because it's so different to what people are used to whether it's uh, sql or um, Excel or just files or folders and files. Can I can I imagine a data lake as just a huge folder where I can just create new folders and just dump all of my whatever it is videos or all of my uh, texts, scanned documents, whatever I want. But is it like does does that um, um, analogy make sense where you think of it as as folders containing certain um, information, or does it look like something else to you? No, that, that's a very apt description of it. I mean, it's a file system much like any other HDFS is. Um, and you can put almost anything onto it, really. Like you, you mentioned um, video, you can put images, you can put audio, you can put texts. Um, you know, really whatever it is that you want to stick on there, um, you could stick on there. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, thank, thanks for the confirmation. Makes makes things a bit more clear now. And... Uh, with your public speaking, so you have all of this vast knowledge and uh, in-depth on in-depth uh, topics, and you you know obviously how to set these things up and um, communicate them well. When you go into a company and do you do the public, uh, you do the speaking there to the employees or to uh, to the even executives. Um, what what are you? What is your main goal? What is your main goal that you're trying to communicate to them? And uh, what uh, do you want as an outcome for them at the end of your conversation? Well, I mean, it's really different. So if I'm doing public speaking as a public speaking thing, you know, if they're, they're bringing me in to do a, you know, 30 minute, 60 minute, 90 minute keynote, yep. then it's a matter of I'm trying to find out what it is they want to accomplish. So, for example, I, I spoke at um, there was this benefits company here in the States that they have like 300 Java developers. And they had done a proof of concept with Hadoop and they were going to move forward with using Hadoop. And they wanted me to come in and, and address these 300 uh, Java developers at their annual conference that they have internally within the company. And I said, okay, so what is it really you're trying to accomplish with this keynote? And they said, well, we want to educate them on Hadoop, give them kind of, you know, the, the 30,000 foot view of how it works and, and what the, the pieces parts are. But mostly we want them to not be afraid of Hadoop and, and understand that, you know, their jobs are changing a bit, but they won't be, you know, they won't be changing that much and they won't go away. And so, you know, that's that's exactly how I tailored the, the speech was, hey, guys, here's what Hadoop is. Here's why the company is, is going to Hadoop. Here's why your future, you know, as Java developers is very secure, you know, with Hadoop. A, MapReduce is, is Java. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah. if, you're, if you're programming in, in MapReduce, you're not using Python or Scala or whatever. 
and so yeah, that was the well, that's what they were trying to accomplish. They wanted to kind of reassure these guys and educate them at the same time. And so that's you know what I tailored the speech to do. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay, Ma- makes sense. And give, can you give us another example of a different speech where you had to tailor it to a different type of audience? Actually, yes, yes. An IT organization asked me to come in and address the executives in their own company and explain to them why the IT organization wanted to use Hadoop to augment the company's um, existing data warehouse. And, you know, I I was talking to the the senior executive who wanted me to do this, and I'm like, "Um, couldn't you do this? (laughs) (laughs) What was his answer to that? And he said, well, yes, but A, I'm not good at that sort of thing. And B, I think it'll carry more weight if it's coming from, you know, a third party. And I yeah. Said, okay. <laughs> okay. So I was I was hired by the IT organization to convince um, executives to do, you know, and to, to go in a direction that the IT group wanted to go. In. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Very, very different. Definitely. Okay. I see how that's working. And um, yeah, so what's what's your biggest challenge that you face when speaking to uh, whether it's executives or large audiences like that? Is it is it hard to get the message across about Hadoop? Not too hard, no. Um, I've always had kind of a knack for taking something that's really complicated and breaking it down to its essence and and explaining that in a way that most people can can understand. The I, to me, the most important thing is to make sure that I understand what it is that they're trying to accomplish with the speech. And that That's really the biggest thing. And to work with them and make sure that, you know, okay, what does success look like at the end of the speech? What's going to happen? Who's going to do what? Um, you know, what information is going to get conveyed? What, you know, is there a skill that you want them to develop? Is there an idea that you want to plant in their head? You know, what, is, what does success look like? You know, how is life different after this speech? Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. And um, just on that, I wanted to ask you as well, for people out there who are listening and who want to get into speaking on um, or public speaking on data-related topics, whether it's data science, machine learning, or even Hadoop as yourself, what would your biggest one piece of advice be for them? Because obviously data science is is a very kind of topic where you don't interact with people that much, where you're uh, very technical and going into speaking can be a big shift for somebody. What would your best advice for a person like that be? I, I would say probably speaking is a skill just like any other skill, like riding a bike or like, you know, coding in, in Python. You learn it by doing it. And so if you haven't done much speaking before, probably the best thing to do is find opportunities to speak. Um, you know, I hate to, to use the old cliche about, you know, go join Toastmasters, but, you know, people recommend that because it works. Okay, gotcha. And, and uh, yourself, how, do, how did you get started into speaking? Oh, gosh. Um, we had a piano in our house when I was growing up, and I, I grew up on a peanut farm in southern Alabama, so there wasn't a whole lot to do um, <laughs> that was very, I mean, there was plenty to do. But there wasn't a whole lot to do that was very entertaining. So um, at six years old, I started, you know, planting myself in front of the piano and and tinkering around on that and eventually taught myself how to play piano. I want to say 
I was 12 when I started playing the organ at the little church around the corner that had, you know, like 70 people in it. And so from a very young age, I was, I was used to being in front of people and, and, you know, I don't think that I ever had the opportunity to develop stage fright. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Okay. So it's pretty, pretty lucky circumstances that you put yourself into. Uh, right. And, and speaking in front of people isn't much different from playing a, a musical instrument in front of them, really. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, when, when you're speaking to, to lots of people, just, just kind of like for myself, I'm curious about this. Um, do you, who do you focus your attention on? Do you look at one person or do you move your eyes around the, the room uh, to make everybody feel included? Oh, you've, you've got to move around the room. Sure. I mean, if you look at one person the whole time you're speaking, um, you're going to accomplish one of two things. You're going to make everybody else feel kind of disconnected from you, or you're going to really freak that person out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They'll be like, why is he staring at me all the time? I'm tired yeah, of this. Yeah. Tired of this. Case. Um, so I, I kind of, you know, let my eyes wander the room as I'm talking and, and kind of gauge different people's reactions to what I'm saying. And, um, you know, of course, the thing that you never want to see is that person with their, you know, half shut eyes looking like they're about to nod off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. And that's kind of like the next thing I wanted to ask is, how do you structure your presentations in such a way that people don't fall asleep? Because a very, very common flaw of technical presentations is that they're either overpopulated with formulas or overpopulated with text or the, or the, just the, the way the presentation is flowing just makes people like not off and they can't pay attention for more than eight or 12 minutes. What, what's your trick to that? Well, you have to know the audience. Right. So there's nothing wrong with a a speech that's full of technical information if you're speaking to 300 Java developers. Um, There is everything wrong with a speech that's full of technical information if you're talking to a room full of uh, business executives. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So you want to keep it nice and sweet and short for the business executives? Well, keep it high level for sure. Um, you know, don't get into the weeds with those kinds of guys and, and be sure to make sure that, um, whatever it is you're, you're talking about this technical subject relates back to, uh, some sort of business problem or business result or, you know, something that they can relate to. Okay. Gotcha. And, um, all right. So, and th- these speaking events, uh, how do they link up with the work you do at, uh, Brilliant Data? Do they detract from your time that you could be spending implementing Hadoop or do they facilitate that and actually uh, help you bring on more uh, work into the company or better uh, f- deliver the projects that you're delivering by then following up with some speaking events? Well, I'm, I'm a consultant who speaks, not a speaker who consults. Um, and so pretty much everything that I, whenever I go and, and give a speech somewhere, it's always Um, you know, coming out of an experience that I had with a client somewhere. And sometimes those experiences are kind of humorous, uh, which is always, that's always great, really, because, you know, humor is a necessary ingredient for for public speaking. It's, you know, we were talking earlier about keeping people's attention. Yep. And humor is, is great for that. It's, also makes you seem a lot more human, you know, when you're on stage, if you, if you relate a funny story. Yep. Yep. And approachable. And uh, can you just give us an example of a funny story you've used recently? 
so I started my career really as a network engineer, not even really doing data. And um, I got uh, I, I got called by I, I was working for Cisco at the time, and they sent me out to this switch site for a major uh, service provider. They were having all kinds of errors. And when I got there, the facility manager seemed really, you know, very amused that I was there. And so I said, yeah, I'm here to, to, you know, troubleshoot the problems with this equipment. He said, oh, yeah, I know right where that is. We'll go up to the top floor. So we went up there and uh, he showed me the, the routers that were having the trouble. And I said, um, Jimmy, what, what is this white film on top of the equipment? He goes, oh, that's where the roof leaks. <laughs> I said, leaks, as in this is still going on? He says, oh, yeah. I've been sending emails trying to get uh, permission to get the roof fixed for like six months now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's your problem, right? Well, yeah. And and so, you know, they spent whatever they spent. I'm sure it was not cheap um, to have Cisco, you know, send me out there to to troubleshoot this when they really could have figured it out just by calling the facilities. Yeah, okay. No, definitely. I I see how that can make people a bit more happy in your uh, presentations and like lighten the mood up. That's, that's a pretty cool story. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So kind of like moving on to some, some other uh, questions that I have for you. Um, what is uh, a recent win that you've had in your career that you can share with us? Something that you're most proud of? I, you know, I, I would have to say it's been about a year and a half ago now. Uh, Pact Publishing reached out and said, hey, you know, we really want to do a training course on Hadoop, and we think you're the right guy to do that. And, um, you know, I said, okay, yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, they, they really, they give you this compressed six-week time period to, to get this thing done. And, you know, it's, I, I know what I want to say. I know how to do the thing that I'm about to demonstrate, but it's getting it recorded and, and edited and put together into something that, that looks good and sounds good is, uh, it's not easy and it's, it's very time consuming. And so, you know, whereas I thought, oh yeah, six weeks, this will be done in three. <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tell me about it. I think it. it was done in six weeks and three days. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> But um, I, I think the the end result was something that I'm pretty proud of. No, that's nice. So you have a, a course which people can take. So our listeners, if they're interested, they can find your course. Where can they find the, your course? Well, they can go to packedpub.com or uh, it's also on the O'Reilly site, O'Reilly.com. But it's called Learning Hadoop 2. There's, uh, there's a book by that title and there's a video course by that title. And I did the video course. Okay, okay. Interesting. And how, how did you find... Uh, you know, creating videos, was it very different to public speaking and was it very different to, you know, other forms of education that you've done before? Well, it's, it's actually quite different from public speaking because if you make a mistake, you get to go back and fix it. (laughs) So it's better. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, you know, you kind of think about what it is you want to demonstrate and what you want to say about it ahead of time. And, you know, if you're going along and, and you kind of trip over your words or you say the wrong thing or, you know, you stub your toe on the, the leg of the table and you accidentally curse like I did one time, <laughs> you know, you just go back and take that out. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Nobody has to know. <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, okay. Next question is, what is your one biggest challenge that you've ever faced in your career? Well, I, I'll tell you. 
um, starting leaving where I was, which was a very comfortable position. I had a great boss. I had a great team that I was working with. But leaving that and going out and starting your own things is very difficult. Um, they say the, the three hardest addictions to overcome are heroin, carbohydrates, and a monthly salary. <laughs> now, I, I don't have any experience with the first one, but I have lost 20 pounds before, and I have left a monthly salary and a very comfortable job to start a company before. And, and those two are very hard things to, to go without. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Gotcha. And, uh, was it, was it tough the first few, I don't know, months, even years when you left? Oh, oh gosh. Yeah. The, the first year was, um, let's just say it was very educational. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. It's, it's, I find it's like, it's like nothing else. It's, you learn so much while you're building a company, building a business, building a team. Um, How did you go about building a team, by the way? How long did it take you to hire your first employee? Well, it, it took a while before I needed an employee. Um, you know, but as, as far as like starting the company, there's this guy, Alan Weiss, that's, uh, you know, done all these books on consulting and uh, running a consulting practice and all that. And something that he says is when you're 80% ready, go ahead and pull the trigger and figure out the other 20% as you go. And so, you know, I thought I was 80% ready. And then I realized after a year, you know, and looking back on that year, I thought, oh, you know what? I was really only about 50%. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But you pulled it off. That's, that's good. And, but yeah, it, it took a while. Um, I, I, my first employee was actually a, um, a virtual assistant really is what, what she was. She's here in town. But we met in uh, we met in a Starbucks around the corner from my house here, and you know she started up a conversation. We're talking, you know, and she asked what I was doing, and I said, you know, I'm I'm looking through these websites. I'm going to hire a virtual assistant, and um, she said, well, you know, actually, um, I've been out of work for about a year now or two years now. I, um, you know, I'm, I had a baby and stayed home and and all that. I'm I'm looking to get back into working again. And she says, I'd be very interested. And so that's kind of how that whole thing came about. And, um, you know, I, I told her, okay, well, you know, here's what the job would involve and you know, here's what the hours would be and all that. And it just kind of went from there. Mm -hmm. And how big is your team now? Well, I've got two salespeople. Um, there's myself. There's um, a team of subcontractors that I'll use for various things. Um, for example, for uh, user interface design and anything graphical, I've, there's a guy that I've known for 10 years. He's probably one of the top 10 in the country at that sort of thing. And um, so, you know, when I've got a project that's, uh, you know, big enough size that I need to bring, bring people in, I, I know who to call for that. And we're about to bring on a couple of interns, actually. I'm extremely fortunate to be headquartered in Atlanta, and Georgia Tech is here. And they have an extraordinary program for, um, you know, data science and for machine learning. And, you know, some of the things they do there are just incredible. And so we're, yeah, so we're bringing on a, a couple of interns um, who know data science and want to learn uh, Hadoop. Okay, good. It's like a win-win. Absolutely. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna do an internship, yeah, it's got to be win-win. There's got to be something in it for them. 
Okay, cool. So next question is, what is your most one most favorite thing about being in the space of data? You know, I'd have to say that it's it's the diver- just the diversity of things that you can do, right? I mean, every company has data. It really doesn't matter what their business is. It generates data. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work with, um, you know, Fortune 500 companies and mid-market companies. And right now, one of my clients is a manufacturing company that makes plastic and metal containers. And... Um, you know, it's just every every engagement you do as a consultant in this industry, you learn something. You know, sometimes I learn as much as as the uh, as the client I'm working with. Of course, I don't tell them that because then they charge me. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best. Oh my god, yeah, totally understand. Yeah, <laughs> but and I I completely can uh, relate to that because this the space is growing so quickly. And the amount of new technology and methodologies coming out all the time is immense. And it's just impossible to know everything. And inevitably, you're going to be learning. Like when I create a course, you know, I know uh, some things, but some things I learn as as I'm doing the research for the content that I'm creating. I'm sure you were you were the same when you were creating your course. You you definitely had to come across or do some research and come across some some things that were just coming out at the time. You know, and, and that's one of the best ways to learn, I think, to be honest with you. Um, you know, if you if you approach a topic that you know something about and you're like, OK, I, I need to really get in depth on this topic and really understand it. I think one of the best ways to really accomplish that is to think in terms of, OK, if I was going to make a course about this, how would I structure this? And, you know, what would I say? And um, that was really how I learned how to do machine learning in Spark. Is because I got a um, I got a request to put together a course about it, and I said, um, "Sure, yeah, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll learn it." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh crap! Now I have to learn Spark." Yeah, um, but you know that wasn't too much of a challenge because I already knew Python. Yeah, and uh, you know the the thing is, if you know Python and pandas and and Scikit, um, then you're you're going to know how to use uh, you're going to know how to use Spark with with Python. And that's one of the great things about Spark that I forgot to mention earlier um, is that, you know, if you know either Scala or Java or Python or even R, then you can use those in Spark. Mm, that's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, I, I've personally, uh, I, I haven't done it through Spark, but I've used R on Hadoop through Pivotal R. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that was that was pretty good. They've got some. And there's another one, Madlib. Uh, have you heard of that one for uh, it's a. It's a green plum, I think, or a pivotal development just for Hadoop, that, uh, like mm-hmm. a, a mathematical package that you can apply as well. So, yes, I've, I've heard of it. I know what it is, but I can't say that I've ever worked with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's just so many tools. You can't work with everything, for sure. But gosh, yeah. I mean, if you know how to code in R, then you know, 90% of that will translate over into using R inside Spark to do you know, machine learning. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. Oh, and by the way, Tableau on top of Hadoop, how do you guys do that? Uh, you know, it's it's not really a whole lot different from using Tableau with any other data source. Um, you know, you point it to it, it depends on what your it depends on what your engine is. I, I hate to use that term, but so for example, in a in a Cloudera cluster, 
Um, Impala would be the sequel engine that you would want to use because Impala is just orders of magnitude faster than Hive. But you would just point Tableau to the IP address of uh, you know one of your data nodes and, and point it to port uh, 21050, which is what the, the port that Impala listens on. And then from there, I mean, it's just like you do with any other uh, ODBC, JDBC connection that you set up for, for Tableau. Okay, gotcha. So it's possible, basically. Short answer. It's possible, people? Who yeah, like... <laughs> the short answer is, oh, yeah, it's absolutely possible. Okay, gotcha. You know, you just, you have to understand if you're working with an immense data sets that, you know, those aren't going to run as fast as smaller ones, and you don't want to package them into a workbook. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, make it. Make what we're it doing, um, what what we did for a client um, recently is, you know, we set up Tableau Server to have the live connection into uh, Impala because it was a Cloudera cluster, and then, um, you know, desktop just connects into uh, into server to get the data, and that that ran pretty quickly. Um, didn't have a whole lot of problems with it. Because the data sets weren't that really that immense. But I mean, even if you're dealing with just tremendously huge data sets, there's solutions for that, like AtScale, for example. AtScale is a nifty little tool. What it does is it let, lets you create dimensional cubes on top of data in Hadoop. Yeah. But then it's also got this adaptive cache. So it learns what data you access the most and it'll actually cache that into memory so it speeds things up tremendously in, in terms of tableau nice nice that sounds sounds pretty solid foundation for tableau and kind of like wrapping up this podcast i've got another question for you like a kind of a visionary type of question or a philosophical one um from obviously you're deep into the space of uh, hadoop and data and data science machine learning from where you're sitting and what you're seeing what do you th where do you think the whole this whole field of data science is going and what should our listeners uh, look into to prepare for the future um let me narrow that down just a bit and and pontificate on the future of hadoop um, sounds if good you don't mind. sounds good so i mean you know i'm sure you're familiar with the gartner hype cycle yeah and, uh, you know, we've gone through the, you know, that peak where everybody was just all about Hadoop and, you know, how to, we've got to have this and we've got to, you know, put it to use and all this. And now we're kind of in that trough of disillusionment where it seems like every time I, I, you know, go online, I'm reading an article somewhere about the death of Hadoop. And, uh, I don't, I don't think Hadoop is, is dead at all. I mean, I think that whole idea is actually kind of silly. But, um, yeah, we're definitely in the, the trough of disillusionment. And then, you know, afterwards comes the plateau of productivity. You know, when everybody has calmed down and, and realized that it's not the cure for everything, but at the same time, you know, the sky is not falling either. And, you know, we, we settle in and we get some work done. And I, I think that's where the future of Hadoop is, is that, you know, companies are going to start realizing what Hadoop is actually useful for. Um, there's going to be enough people with the skills to, you know, do things in Hadoop and we're going to actually start getting things and it's not just going to be, you know, the fortune 500s who, uh, you know, are able to extract value out of Hadoop. There's, you know, pretty much anybody will be able to. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's, yeah, that's uh, some good advice. So people listening to this, don't get afraid that Hadoop is dying. It's not dying. Everything will be okay. Just 
kind of like plow along and it's going to be a an exciting space to be in in any case and plus in any case all these skills that you learn they're so transferable to whatever even if something does replace hadoop it's not going to be that much different right so you're going to be able to transfer all these skills anyway so yeah well and, and that's another thing too people um you know it seems like every time i turn around somebody's comparing hadoop to spark which i think is kind of funny because um, every time I've ever seen Spark, it was running on top of Hadoop. You know, while it is possible to set up a cluster that runs just Spark, the reality is that, you know, hardly anybody does it that way. Gotcha. Okay. Thanks for the insights. Um, well, thank you very much, Scott, for coming on the show. Very, It was very exciting and uh, for sharing all the knowledge. Uh, as a, From the surveys that we run and from what I know about our audience, we actually have quite a few executives on uh, listening to this podcast and quite a few ma- managers and business owners even. Um, if any of them ever want to get in touch with you to invite you to do maybe a public speech at their organization or help install Hadoop or do some consulting work, where is the best place they can find you? Probably email. I would say, yeah. Um, so it's scott at brilliantdata.net. Gotcha. All right. We will definitely include that in the show notes as well. And people listening out there, if you need to contact Scott, you have his email now. And one last question I have for you is what is one favorite book that you can recommend to our listeners to help them become better at what they do? So I'm, I'm going to I'm going to up that and say two. Sounds good. So, uh, you know, probably 80% of any job that you do with, with data is getting the data into, you know, the, the usable format, something that you can work with. And uh, there's O'Reilly has a great book for that called Data Wrangling with Python. You know, that book probably has 80 or 90% of the stuff that you're going to do on a day-to-day basis with data. Um, you know, you, you can, it's, there's all about cleaning data scraping data off the web. I mean, if there's some technique or method for preparing data, it's probably in that book. And the second one is is Hadoop specific, and that's uh, Hadoop MapReduce version two cookbook, which is a really unnecessarily long title for a book, but that one's by um, Pact Publishing. Um, I was uh, fortunate enough to be the technical reviewer on that book. Yeah. And it's just full of, again, you know, just day to day stuff that you would do with Hadoop from, you know, set, spinning up a cluster in the cloud to, um, you know, bringing in data and, and setting a table, uh, setting up a table with Hive. And it even goes into, you know, using Mahout, which is another uh, component of Hadoop to do machine learning. So if there's something that you want to do with Hadoop, it's probably in there. Sounds good. Thanks a lot. So there we go. Data wrangling with Python and Hadoop MapReduce version 2 cookbook. Um, Once again, thank you very much, Scott. Really appreciate you taking the time to come on this podcast and share all of this wisdom and knowledge with us. Well, I really appreciate you inviting me to. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Lots and lots of valuable information. As you can see, Scott has a very in-depth knowledge on the topic and is definitely in the most advanced frontiers of Hadoop and everything to do uh, with data in organizations, data lakes and uh, big data and all of these things. And he was kind enough to come 
on the show, spend an hour's time and share all of these things with us. So I hope you took this opportunity to pick up some additional knowledge and skills. And personally, I definitely learned a lot as well. And my favorite part was, of course, the breakdown of all of these different aspects of Hadoop, all of these um, elements, highlights such as Hive, Kudu, uh, Spark, Seahorse, some of them I knew about, some of them I've worked with, but some of them I haven't even heard of and I was very excited to learn and I can definitely uh, look back and say now I know some more things about Hadoop and looks like the space is constantly evolving. And so on that note, if you would ever like to get in touch with Scott, if for example you are an executive uh, or a manager or you own your own business and you'd like to get Scott to come in and help you with your analytics strategy, make sure to reach out to him. Um, as you could tell from this podcast, this is a person with a huge wealth of knowledge who's excited to share it. So um, this is your go-to guy for anything to do with Hadoop and data strategy. And with that, don't forget that you can find all of the resources mentioned in this episode at www.superdatascience.com slash 51. There you'll be able to find the transcript for this episode as well as uh, a link to Scott's LinkedIn, his company's page and his email. And thank you so much for being here today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Can't wait to see you next time. Until then, happy analyzing. <laughs>